Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. Today we'll resume our series, One Another, The Path to Biblical Community, or The Path of Biblical Community. We've talked about loving one another. We've talked about praying for one another. And one of the things that was on my heart as I designed the series was build up one another. But when I began to look at the, uh, the verses that say build up one another, there's a lot of them. One didn't quite fit uh, the, the whole thing. So I said, hmm, I'm going to back up and look at this forest instead of the trees. And uh, it's neat that after all these years of studying the Word of God, you can come and look and you go, I think I know this. And then you study it and you go, I do not know this, all right? And so uh, it's been an adventure this week seeking the Lord on this, but we're going to talk about building up one another. Now, we'll be in 1 Corinthians if you want to turn there, but imagine a church, okay? Imagine a church for just a minute where members sue each other in court, where, where they habitually attend social banquets where they honor idols, where they have one in their midst that's living in open sexual immorality and the church tolerates it. Uh, think think of, a, of a place where you go where some in the congregation think it's better for Christian couples to separate uh, in order to be more holy and devoted to the Lord. Um, the worship services are shocking. It's not edifying. Uh, people come to the Lord's Supper, they get drunk. When they gather, they get in their little exclusive groups and talk about their favorite preacher. Uh, the visitors don't know what's going on. Uh, some doubt the resurrection. Others haven't followed through on their financial commitments. And you would say, is that really a church? Well, it was in Corinth. It was in Corinth. And Paul wrote at least two letters to them. We think there's a lost letter as well, but we have two letters in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, where Paul wrote to this church in Corinth, and everything I just said was going on in the congregation. And uh, here's the thing, Paul is the one that planted the church and pastored it probably for a year and a half. Yeah, that's the church. And so that's kind of the background of what's going on. Now, as I said, the church in Corinth had divisions. Uh, they had at least a four-way split. Uh, they had open immorality. They had people that, uh, that were involved in idolatry. They would sue one another and take them to court. And then by the time you read the second letter of 2 Corinthians, um, um, Paul had to correct some misunderstandings that they had about church. And so in 2 Corinthians, he talks about how to engage in spiritual warfare how to exercise spiritual authority, how to evaluate the ministry. He, he did all of these things. And as I was looking at this, I want to give you some scriptures to kind of give you a framework, a background, a context. But in 2 Corinthians, I'll, I'll get to 1 Corinthians in a minute, but in 2 Corinthians, if you're taking notes, chapter 10, verse 7 and 8, I want you to notice a common phrase that keeps popping up. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 7, Look at what is obvious. If anyone is confident that he belongs to Christ, let him remind himself of this, just as he belongs to Christ, uh, so do we. For if I boast a little too much about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up 
and not for tearing you down, I will not be put to shame. So Paul is contrasting himself with other leaders in the church, and he says, God's given me authority, but that authority is not to tear you down. It is to build you up. All right, look, if you will, at 2 Corinthians 12. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 19. He says, have you been thinking all along that we were defending ourselves to you? No, in the sight of God, we are speaking in Christ, and everything, dear friends, is for building you up. Now, why is Paul saying this? Because Paul is dealing with a divided church. He's dealing with a church that's got all kinds of problems, and he's fixing to confront them head on, okay? And what he wants to say up front is, I'm doing this in love, I'm standing for the truth, and everything I'm doing is for the building up of the church, not the tearing down. Look, if you will, in the the next verse here, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 10. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 10, he says, This is why I'm writing these things while absent, so that when I am there, I may not have to deal harshly with you in keeping with the authority the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. So in all three of those passages I just gave you, you see the common refrain of Paul saying as as a leader, as an apostle, I have authority, but I have to use it lawfully. I have to use it wisely. And so when you deal with things, you know, we talked about in Sunday school today, we was in Second John, some of us were talking about walking in truth, walking in love. What does that look like? And so Paul is modeling that, and he's saying the authority God gave me is to build you up, not to tear you down. And what I want to do today is I want to uh, go to 1 Corinthians 8 and give you a practical example, because when you read 1 Corinthians, Paul talked about several topics that he was addressing in the church. We're going to look at one and go really deep this morning, so I'll try to talk fast and y'all listen fast, okay? Uh, but, but I'll take one topic, and you will show how he handled it in truth and in love and how he used his authority to build up the congregation and not tear it down, okay? So look, if you will, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, and he says, Now about food, sacrifice to idols. Now, I don't have time right now to go through all the other topics he raised. He raised several topics in 1 Corinthians, and you'll know that he changes topics when he says, now about this, okay? And so in chapter 8, he says, now about food, sacrifice to idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Now, what I want to do today is I want to give you, I guess, three factors, three factors that help us build up one another, okay? And the first factor is to know biblical doctrine. Let's read the rest of this chapter. It's short. In verse 4, about eating food sacrifice to idols, then we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there's no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there's one God, the Father. All things are from Him and we exist for Him. And there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through Him and we exist through Him. However... Not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now 
that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are not worse off if we don't eat, and we're not better off if we do eat. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. Now, let's kind of size this up for a minute. The first point, the first factor that we need to know to help us build others up is you got to know biblical doctrine. you got to know biblical teaching. you got to know biblical truth. And here in chapter 8, he raises the issue of food sacrificed to idols And he says, we all have knowledge. He may have heard them say that. We've got knowledge. And in in Corinth, they valued knowledge. And that's why Paul would contrast that earlier at the beginning of 1 Corinthians and talk about wisdom and how there is a godly wisdom and that we have the mind of Christ. And so now he's talking about knowledge and he gives us a headline that should stop us in our tracks and make us think. He says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You know, one of my mentors in the ministry said, you know, we really got it wrong when it comes to preparing people for ministry. We send them off to school and we make them study, 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 and they get all this knowledge and they come and they unleash it on a church and knowledge puffs up. And they don't learn how to love God. They don't know how to love people. They, they have to learn. And he says many times you see young people, they go off to seminary, they, they come to a church and they crash in burn okay and uh, he says love uh, knowledge puffs up but uh, love builds up and he says if you think you know anything you don't know it like you should isn't that the truth but if you love God you're known by him when you love God he knows your heart he knows everything about you and hey he loves you anyway and it sounds like here when he talks about food sacrifice to, uh, to idols that this is an issue and He's going to take a side. But then he says, you know, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And then he starts using their reasoning. Well, you know, an idol's not really anything, and I suppose that would be true. And food, I mean, food is what it is if you do eat it, if you don't eat it. I mean, if you thank God for it, I mean, Peter learned that, you know, all food is clean. Remember that when in Acts 10, before he went to Cornelius, the the vision from heaven and, uh, and all of that. Uh, Paul told Timothy in one of his letters that everything's consecrated by the word of God in prayer. But, but look at how he's using this. He's using their logic. He's using their reasoning. An idol's not anything. Food's not really a big deal. And so why is this an issue? But then he says, if someone sees you doing it and you're a Christian, then you might cause your brother to stumble. And now he goes from implying that you can do this and it's no big deal to now he says, if you cause your brother to stumble, you're you're ruined by your knowledge, you're wounding their conscience, you're sinning against Christ, and you're causing your brother or sister to fall. And Paul says, well, if that's the way it is, I'll never eat meat again. And he did all that in one chapter. 
And so that got me to thinking, when it comes to building others up, do we know Bible doctrine? And this is a good example to use because until I started studying this, I'm like, I don't know what I think I know. Let's take a quick detour for a moment and let me show you. It's going to be a detour, but you'll get, get it at the end. Turn to the book of Leviticus. It's the third book in the Bible. You got Genesis, you got Exodus, and you got Leviticus. Man, I've always wanted to check the box, you know, preaching on a Sunday morning. We preached from Leviticus. How often does that happen, right? But uh, anyway, in Leviticus 17, you will find in the law that God gave Moses to give to Israel, you will find out there's some things there that he tells them not to do. And I'm going to highlight them very quickly. Uh, I don't want to get into the weeds too much. I just want to point out what they are. And I want to point out one thing that is, that is a thread through all of these things, okay? Let's see if you catch it. In Leviticus 17, look in verse 7. He says, They must no longer offer their sacrifices to the goat demons that they have prostituted themselves with. This will be a permanent statute for them throughout their generations. Say to them, Anyone from the house of Israel or from the aliens who reside among them who offers a burnt offering or a sacrifice but does not bring it to the entrance to the tent of meeting to sacrifice it to the Lord, that person is to be cut off from his people. This is about forbidden sacrifices. And it applies to not only the people of God, the the Jewish people, but to the alien that are in their midst. Remember that. Remember that. Then... Jump down to verse 10, Leviticus 17.10. Anyone from the house of Israel or from the aliens who reside among them who eats any blood, I will turn against that person who eats blood and cut him off from his people. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I've appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives. Uh, Since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement, therefore I say to the Israelites, none of you... And no alien who resides among you may eat blood. So he's saying, you know, no sacrifice to to idols or no sacrifices done the wrong way that break protocol. And now don't eat blood. And this applies to the Jews and to the aliens that live in your midst. All right, now let's look at verse 15. Uh, Leviticus 17, verse 15. Every person, whether the native or the resident alien, there you go, who eats an animal that died a natural death or was mauled by a wild beast is to wash his clothes and bathe with water and he'll remain unclean until evening and then he will be clean. But if he does not wash his clothes and bathe himself, he will bear his iniquity. Now this is talking about coming along and and finding an animal that's already dead. You didn't hunt it, you didn't kill it. It's been laying there. Who knows how long it's been laying there. Maybe it was mauled by an animal. Maybe it's roadkill. I don't know. And he's saying... You know, you don't really need to eat that, but if you do, you're ceremonially unclean, and there's a protocol you need to follow, and if you don't follow that, that protocol to become clean again, then you bear your iniquity, and that applies to the, uh, to the native and to the alien among you. And then you jump to chapter 18, and I'm going to keep this very simple. It, it talks about forbidden... Um, sexual practices, like the Bible upholds uh, one man, one woman in marriage, period. And so this is everything else that's prohibited. And in chapter 18, let's go down to verse 24. And it says, Do not defile yourselves by any of these practices. 
For the nations I am driving out before you have defiled themselves by all these things. The land has become defiled, so I am punishing it for its iniquity, and the land will vomit out its inhabitants. But you are to keep my statutes and ordinances. You must not commit any of these detestable acts, not the native or the alien who resides among you. So I hope you'll notice here that there is forbidden sacrifices of a certain kind. There is forbidden eating of blood. There is issues with eating a dead animal carcass. And there's forbidden sexual practices. And they apply to the Jew and the alien that lives in their midst. Now, we're done with the detour. Now you're going to find out, so what? You remember in the book of Acts, in chapter 15, they had this big Jerusalem conference or council meeting because Paul and Barnabas had took the gospel outside of Israel. They were, they were sharing the gospel. They were planting churches. They were going on mission trips. And everything came to a head because the Jews would follow them wherever they went. And they, they were raising the issue, do you have to be circumcised to be saved? And so they had this big meeting in Jerusalem. The apostles, the elders... And all of them came together to answer this question. And the ultimate answer was, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved, okay? When, when you, whether a Jew or a Gentile, hear the gospel about Jesus Christ and you believe you're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, nothing more, nothing else, nothing less, period, okay? And yet, at the end of that uh, story in Acts chapter 15, if you will look... In verse 28, they made a decision and they wrote a letter and they wanted everybody to know what their conclusion on this issue was. And in Acts 15, verse 28, uh, it says, For it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that's been strangled and from sexual immorality, you will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. And when I read that, I've read that for years, I always thought, that's really odd. Like, like you know, here we are breaking down walls between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and the issue of circumcision is settled, but the outcome of this is, hey, Gentile Christians you would do well to avoid these four things. And we look at it through Gentile eyes and we go, this is really odd, like food sacrificed to idols, eating blood, eating something that's been strangled and sexual immorality, like three of them feel like they're over here, they deal with eating, and one over here, the immorality, I get that. That's so strange. But where do you think they got it from? Leviticus 17. They were in prayer. They were looking at the Word of God that they had then, which was the Old Testament. And they saw some things that God gave that applied to the Jew and the alien among them. And they said, we're going to apply this to all Christians, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and say, if you will honor this right here, you will do well. And so that's exactly what they did. Now, what I want to point out here is that's in Acts 15. You know what's interesting? You know when Paul went to Corinth? We, we actually know when Paul went to Corinth for the first time, preached the gospel, and a church was planted. 
and it was after this. In Acts 15, they write the letter, these are the four things you would do well to avoid. In Acts 18, verse 1, after this, he left Athens and went to Corinth. The he is Paul. In Acts 18, 11, he, referring to Paul, stayed there a year and a half teaching the word of God among them. So Paul plants the church in Corinth, is teaching them the word of God, knowing full well that from now on, when you go to the Gentiles, you would do well to avoid these four things. And if that's not enough, in Acts 21, in Acts 21, we have a record of Paul going to Jerusalem. And he meets with James and the leaders in Jerusalem. And to kind of sum it up, here's what happens. James and the leaders in Jerusalem go, Paul, we're glad you're here. We love you, man, but there's something you need to know. Everybody around here hears about you taking, you know, the word of God and the gospel to the Gentiles, and they think that you don't care about our customs anymore. They think that you don't care about the law of the Old Testament anymore. And if they see you out in public, you might have some problems. So here's what we want to do. Uh, We've got some men over here that have made a vow, and they're going to go to the temple. And if you will go with them and and, kind of cover their cost for making this vow and do it with them, everybody will go, hey, he's still one of us. He still agrees with some of the things that we do. And, 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 and in telling Paul that, in Acts 21, verse 25, they remind him of something. In Acts 21, 25, they said, With regard to the Gentiles who have believed, we have written a letter containing our decision that they should keep themselves from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. So what was given in Acts 15 is now repeated again in Acts 21 to Paul. Now, Paul already knew it. He was there in Acts 15. He was part of that conference, that council. He was there. But now in Acts 21, he's told directly and he's reminded of it. And yet here is Paul writing a letter to the church in Corinth going, about food sacrificed to idols. Well, we already have a definitive decision on it. Why is he doing what he's doing? Because he's got to minister to this group of Gentile believers that are in a completely different culture where idolatry is just like being a fish in water. He knows what the Word of God teaches. He knows what the decision was made. Um, So we see the Old Testament roots of it in Leviticus. We see the application of it in the New Testament in the book of Acts. Did you know that Jesus even weighed in on food sacrifice to idols? This surprised me. I totally forgot about it. If you look in Revelation, uh, you know and I know that in the book of Revelation, um, Jesus said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send my messenger. You know, John, I want you to deliver these, these seven letters to the seven churches. And none of those churches were in Israel. None of them were. They were all Gentile uh, believing churches. And in two of them, the church in Pergamum, in Revelation 2.14, and this is Jesus talking, he says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. That's two of the four that Acts 15 mentions. And clearly Jesus is against it. In Revelation 2.20, the church in Thyatira, in Revelation 2.20, he says, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel 
who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Wow. So now we've got the Old Testament roots and foundation for this teaching. We have the New Testament application in the book of Acts for the church. And now we even have the endorsement of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who says, don't do this. Wow. You know? So you read this and you go, wow. So when it comes to building up each other, you and I have to know biblical doctrine. We have to know what does the Word say. And we have to make sure that we respond to God's revelation properly. You know, let me give you a couple examples. Eve in the garden, you know, God had revealed himself to Adam. And I'm sure Adam told Eve, God has given us all of this in the Garden of Eden. We can enjoy ourselves, but there's one thing he told us not to do. Don't eat of that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet what happened? You know, she had this dialogue with the devil who tempted her, and she began to reason why can't I have this? Yet, Abraham is a positive example. You know, Abraham waited on God for years. God says, I'm going I'm to bless you with a son, and I'm going to make you a father of many nations, and kings will come from you, and all this, that, and the other. And he waited, and he waited several years until Isaac was born. Isaac was the child of promise. I mean, Abraham was, what, 100, and Sarah was 90, and their ability to, to have kids was pretty much zero. And yet uh, God enabled them to do that. And then years later, when God says, I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and take him up on the mountain and sacrifice him to me, Abraham reasoned in his heart that I can do this. God gave, it to, God gave him to me, and I'll give him back to God. And, and even, if I, even if I sacrifice him, God has the ability to bring him back from the dead. And he believed that. And Hebrews 11 validates that point. So what am I saying? You and I, when it comes to God's revealed word, we can take that knowledge and we can reason ourselves to obedience or we can reason ourselves to disobedience. So when it comes to building up other believers, we have to know biblical doctrine, teaching, and truth. Number two, we have to exercise our Christian duty. Look, if you will, in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9. This is kind of a headline. Be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. When it comes to our knowledge of Bible truth, we still got to understand that we have a Christian duty. We have a Christian responsibility. And the big thing is we don't want to be a stumbling block to others. Uh, we already highlighted a while ago that, that uh, as he traced their argument, he says, if you do this, if you cause your brother to stumble, you're you're, you're ruined by your knowledge. You're wounding their conscience. You're sinning against Christ. That's verse 12. Uh, you are sinning against Christ. And you're causing your brother or sister to fall or stumble. Now, at this point, I'm going to make this very quick because we're covering a lot of ground. But at this point, Paul gives three examples. You will find that chapters 8, 9, and 10 of 1 Corinthians are a unit. And in chapter 9, Paul, it looks like Paul has changed subjects. But not quite. Paul in chapter 9 talks about his ministry as an apostle. And he talks about the example he sets. And uh, he, 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 he uses himself as an example to make his point about be careful how you use your rights. Because there in chapter 9, I'll just read the first four verses. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? 
Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, at least I am to you because you are the, the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And my defense to those who examine me is this. Don't I have the right to eat and drink? We're still talking about eating, aren't we? And he talks about other rights too, but he leads out with that one. Do, not, do I not have a, a right to eat? And so he's saying, I have certain rights, but I lay those rights down so that I can boast that uh, I'm not depending on anybody for anything and I'm setting an example for others. Matter of fact, in verse 15, he says, For my part, I have used none of these rights, nor have I written these things that they might be applied in my case. I'm not asking for them either, he says. For it would be better for me to die than for anyone to deprive me of my boast. So right here, as one commentator says, Paul contrasts his attitude and actions with those who insist on eating this meat sacrificed to idols. He, he proves his right to eat and drink at the expense of the brethren to whom he ministers to by citing support from Old Testament law, secular life, the practice of the other apostles, and the teaching of our Lord. If you read all of chapter 9, it's in there. That's just a summary. So Paul sets his liberty aside and he lays down his right. And that emphasizes what he's trying to say in chapter 8 when he says, be careful with this right of yours. Don't let it be a stumbling block. The second illustration he uses, he uses himself as an example, as an apostle. The second illustration he uses is the athletic games. You know, we're familiar with the Olympics. Uh, There was something similar to that in Paul's day. And uh, there at the end of chapter 9, verse 24 and 5, don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control and everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So the second example that he uses when it comes to your rights is look at an athlete. An athlete gives up a lot of rights in order to be the best and at the top of their game. When everybody else is going here, when everybody else is going there, they don't do that. Man, I tell you, one of the hardest things I did uh, uh, earlier in my life is when I went to seminary and and getting my education and writing a dissertation. Oh my gosh, that was hard. But the hard part wasn't the academic part. The hard part was saying no, no, no every time I turned around. Hey, we're fixing to go over here. Can you do that? I'm sorry, I can't, you know. And I had to say no to get it done and move, on, move forward with my life. Uh, a third example, a third example of, of illustration. you got Paul who, you know, laid down his rights as an apostle. you got these athletes that, that give up a lot in order to be the best at their game. And then you got Israel. Right there in chapter 10, uh, he talks about Israel. And look at what it says. It says in verse 1, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, All passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now watch verse 3. They all ate the same spiritual fruit, and they all drank the same spiritual drink. We're still talking about eating, aren't we? Yes, we are. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, since they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Uh, Don't become idolaters, as some of them were. And as it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they got up to party. Let us not commit sexual 
immorality, as some of them did, and in a single day, 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ, as some of them did, and were destroyed by snakes. And don't complain, as some of them did, and they were killed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. We need to learn from their mistakes. We need to learn from Israel. Israel, all of them experienced God, but only two of that first generation went to the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. All of these are examples and illustrations for us on be careful how you use your rights. Don't displease God. Don't be a stumbling block to your brother. And then in case you think I've forced this, he's still talking about idolatry. He's still talking about meat offered to idols because there in chapter 10, verse 14, he begins to talk about it some more. And he raises, he addresses three situations. I'm going to make this fast. Three situations. Number one, should a believer eat meat sacrificed to idols as part of a religious ritual? That's a hard, fast, and obvious no. Okay? But let me show it to you. There in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, he says, So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I am speaking as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I'm saying. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? What am I saying then? That food sacrificed to idols. He's still talking about this issue from chapter 8 to now. He's still talking about it. He says that food sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? At the end of the, at the, end of the day, Paul would say, you know, an idol really is nothing. But is it really nothing? Because behind the nothing is something. And he says it's a demonic influence to turn you away, amen, to turn you away from the living God. And when it comes to that, you don't need to play with that. You play with fire, you are going to get burned. So should a believer eat meat sacrificed to idols as part of some religious ritual like in the temple or something? That'll be a hard and fast, no way, Jose, not now, not ever, period, okay? But this is Corinth, and they've got a lot going on in their community, it's like a fish in water. Idolatry is everywhere. So the next question, the second question, should a believer eat meat purchased at the market? Long story short, you know, they would, they would sacrifice this meat and they would use it to worship idols, but they would take some of it they didn't use and they would send it to the market and it would ultimately be sold at the grocery store. We'll put it in contemporary terms. Now, that, that doesn't mean that all the meat at the grocery store had had been involved in this idol sacrifice, but some of it was. And the question is, how do you know? If I go and get some, you know, some beef 
at the grocery store. How do I know it didn't go to the temple to be sacrificed? I don't know. Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. And so the question, the concern is, is should a believer eat meat purchased at the market? And there in chapter 10, verse 25, he says, eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience, since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. So that's what he says. So if you go to the meat market and you get meat, don't worry about it. Just eat it. Because how are you going to know? But we know that what Paul told Timothy is that everything is consecrated by the word of God and prayer in, in 1 Timothy. So don't worry about it. That's you going to the market, going home, cooking it, and eating it for you and your family. But then the third question. The third question is, should a believer accept a dinner invitation from an unbeliever, someone that's not a Christian, knowing that meat might be on the menu, knowing that you don't know where it came from, and what do you do if somebody there says something? What do you do in that awkward moment? Well, look if you will, verse 27, chapter 10. He says, if any of the unbelievers invites you over and you want to go, eat everything that is set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. There's that thought again. I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I give thanks? You know, the thought is here, I can still pray and thank God for it and eat and no different than me being at home and it's just me. So what's the deal? But then he says, so, in verse 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, which covers any conceivable situation, do everything for the glory of God, okay? Give no offense to Jew or Greek or the church of God. We don't want to leave anybody out, right? Just as I also try to please everyone and everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. So there you go. He addresses three situations. Now stick with me, I'm almost done. So we're talking about three factors that help us build up other believers. Number one, you've got to know biblical teaching. You've got to know biblical doctrine. Number two, you've got to exercise your Christian duty. And this third one's going to be short and quick, so pay attention. Number three, ask discerning questions. Ask discerning questions. Let's look at those last uh, three verses again. They're in 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 33. Here's what he says. He says, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also try to please everyone and everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. Now, the questions I would encourage you to ask is, number one, when you're not sure what to do, does it glorify God? Because we're supposed to glorify Fire God in everything we do, right? Whether we eat, whether we drink, whatever we do, we need to do everything to the glory of God. So when you're trying to make a decision, is this kosher or not? Should I do this or not? Does it glorify God? Question number one. Number two, does it edify others? Edify is another word for build up, okay? Does it build other people up? Does it encourage them? Does it point them to Jesus? Does it strengthen their relationship with God? Does it 
edify them? Does it build them up? If it has the opposite effect, then it's going to be a stumbling block. It's going to be an offense. And in verse 32, he says, give no offense to Jew or Greek or the church of God. A third question you can ask is, does it sanctify myself? Now, the word sanctify means holy, okay? It means holy. That means when it comes to you, go back to Eve in the garden, dialoguing with the devil, reasoning, why can't I do this? Versus Abraham, who's commanded to offer his son to the Lord. And he goes, well, I guess if I do this, I don't understand what's going to happen, but I believe God can raise him from the dead. And so, does your reasoning lead you to disobedience or to obedience? In other words, does this sanctify me? Does this keep me walking in truth and holiness? Or does it put me in a position where I'm open to compromise and lowering God's standard? The fourth and final question is, what does it testify to the unbeliever? Notice he said there in the last verse of chapter 10, he says that, I try to please everyone and everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many. Why? So that people can be saved. What about your witness? At the end of the day, regardless of what you think, when an unbeliever sees you doing something, are they going to question your commitment to Christ? Are they going to question your integrity? Are they going to question your influence? Think about these four questions this week. And when you encounter a situation that you're not sure what the right response is, ask yourself those four questions. If I do this, will it glorify God? If I do this, will it edify other believers? If I do this, will it sanctify myself? And if I do this, what will it testify to a lost and dying world that doesn't believe? What will they think? What will they say? And this is how you and I build one another up. We have to know what does the Word actually teach. And we have to fulfill our Christian duty. Love God, love others, don't be a stumbling block. And then we have to ask these questions that really help us stay on the right path. They keep us from getting in the ditch. And that's the word today. I've got one last scripture and I'm going to close. This is found in Romans 14, verse 15. Paul says, For if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, don't let your good be slandered. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and receives human approval. You remember what the gospel said about Jesus when he was growing up? He grew up, he grew in physical stature, he grew up in wisdom, and he grew in favor with God and with man. You and I, it is possible in this crazy world to to do the right thing in the eyes of God, and it's acceptable to God, and it's approved by men. It is possible to have that kind of ministry, but the only way you can do it is you use your authority to build people up and not tear them down. So today, I encourage you, were you in your walk with Christ? First of all, 
Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Has He come into your life? Is He your Lord and Savior? You have to start there. Now, if you say, I've already done that, Brother Corey, that's great. Then the question is this. Look at how you live your everyday life. When you come to those major decisions, do you try to glorify God, edify others, sanctify yourself, and, and, and live in such a way that it's a good testimony to the world? If not, you need to start thinking that way. And you need to live your life in such a way that it's acceptable to God and it's approved by men. I'll tell you what I learned a long time ago in ministry. When I started out as a 17-year-old young preacher, I thought my job was to love God and please people. Boy, did I have that wrong. It's opposite. I am to please the Lord and love people. I can please God. Matter of fact, the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. So if I trust and obey God, I can please Him. And with His help, with His Spirit, with His grace, I can love people. And at the end of the day, that's what counts. So many times, we get it all wrong. We want to love God, because that sounds good. And we want to please people. That doesn't work. But if you please God, and you love people... That'll work any day of the week. So I encourage you this morning to seek the Lord and do what He would have you to do. If you'll stand, if musicians will come, if the ushers will come, thank you for listening this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Thank you for this time that we can come together and worship you. Lord, we've worshiped you with our hearts and our lips. Father, we've heard your message today from your word. And now today, Lord, we want to offer ourselves to you. We want to respond in, in faith and trust and obedience. We want to please you and you alone. So, Lord, I pray that you'll have your will and your way in this invitation. And, Father, I pray if there's someone here today, Lord, that doesn't know you, Lord, that today would be the day that they turn from their life of sin and come and trust you with their whole heart and their whole life. Father, I pray for every believer out there today, Lord, that you'd help us to take the time to really know what your word says, that we would be willing to lay down our rights, die to ourselves, so that we can follow you daily. And Lord, that we'll ask these tough questions that keep us in between the lines and not in the ditch. Lord, have your will and way in our lives. We want to please you. And Lord, we want a watching world to see that we are acceptable to you and we're approved by men, that we're growing in favor with God and people, and people see a difference in our lives. And Lord, that makes all the difference in the world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact a pastor, please visit phbcsomerset.com.